Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week in Health IT. Change is hard. The pandemic compelled a lot of us to do things that were not normal and were uncomfortable for us. It's Newsday. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week in Health IT, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to Sirius Healthcare, Health Lyrics, and Worldwide Technology, who are our Newsday show sponsors for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health IT leaders. Just a quick note before we get to our show, we launched a new podcast today in Health IT. We look at one story every weekday morning and we break it down from a health IT perspective. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts at Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, you name it, we're out there. You can also go to todayinhealthit.com. And now on to today's show. Today, it is Tuesday, and this is our post-HIMS show. We have some security events, as usual, unfortunately. Telehealth in space and digital transformation seems to be stuck in autopilot. Today, we're joined by the incomparable Drex DeFord. Drex, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks. It's always good to be with you. Glad to see you're doing well. And so we start with HIMS. Did you go? Did you wind up making it? I did not make it. I, I canceled about a week and three days before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we were about two weeks out and we had sort of our own little staff huddle at CrowdStrike and said, we're going to, there's some events that we have already invested in that we're going, that we're sponsoring and we continue to do that, but we won't attend in person. So we didn't attend live either. Yeah. So I, I got bits and pieces out of it. We're, we're going to cover the story here. And this is, the best coverage you could possibly get when you have your own media company, which Hims does, they they cover themselves. And their CEO said they were thrilled with the numbers. They haven't released the numbers. They said they had eighteen thousand registrations just prior to the event. But you know, I, I I talked to a couple of people who were there. They said positive things. They said the conversations were a lot more focused than they have been in the past. It was a lot easier to find the people you were trying to find if they were at the event, but it was sparsely attended. There's no yeah. getting around it. It was, and with regards to a hymns, a normal 40,000 person event, it was much mm. smaller than that on site. But, but again, a lot of digital presentations, I've been looking at them and reading them, some good presentations. And uh, I don't know, what did, what did you hear about the event? Pretty much the same. I mean, I think I, 18,000 registrations, I don't know, some fraction of that attended. I think there were a lot of people who canceled as the date got closer and just attended digital only. I had a lot of friends, a lot of folks that I knew who we had plans to meet up that wound up sending me notes and saying, we've changed our mind. If it was anywhere but Vegas, we could go. A lot of that kind of conversation. So I think there were a lot of folks who backed at the last minute, but I could totally see for the folks who went, <clears throat> you're not as rushed to rush through this conversation to get to the next conversation because there's nobody waiting in line or you, you take 10 minute appointments and turn them into 30 minute appointments. You've got a lot more time to have 
more in-depth conversations. So that was probably good for the folks who who were there and, and involved in that kind of uh let, let me let me throw a hypothetical at you. If it had been in Orlando, would that have changed the the rubric around this? Well, Orlando's is I mean it's as red as Las Vegas around Delta variant, right? So no, probably not Orlando, but if it would have been in, I don't know, I'd have to, I'd have to look <laughs> at the map. You know, I, I, it's, it's been, been, it's been a week since I looked at the map, but um, Orlando, I would have been better than Vegas because Vegas, there's no way to control the environment because even though Orlando might be red, the Orlando convention center, is a pretty mm-hmm. self-contained. I mean, if you're doing a conference there, there's nobody else there. It's not like they're, they're doing not tied into casinos and other people. You on your way to your room and back, you don't have any choice except to go yeah. through crowded rooms with other people. As it was, I think you got the. Did you see the email where a couple of people did? did? Yeah, yeah. Test yeah, I posted about that this morning on three extracts, but I got the note, and then I'm like, oh no, I hope this isn't like the beginning of something. Um, big, but it's the three people tested positive that they know of so far. I can tell you, I got lots of videos from the people that I did know that went to the conference. I got videos from them regularly every night of lots of parties without masks and people not social distancing and all of that. So I think there were a lot of people who went and were in the bubble and stayed in the bubble of the conference and went to their room and came back to the bubble that were probably safer. But I also think there was probably an illusion of safety because there were also people who were leaving the bubble behaving not great in the evening and then coming back to the bubble the next day. Everybody's vaccinated, everybody has masks, but as we see right now, there's tons of like breakthrough infections that you don't have symptoms for, then you get people who aren't vaccinated, infected. And it's just, I don't know. It's tough. Yeah, I mean, well, the, the, the good news is everybody who went to the event was vaccinated, right? So they had that process in place. And we know that the, the breakthrough cases is uh, it's somewhere around 5%. It's not, it, I mean, the unvaccinated, it's like 90% of the cases and sure, sure. So somewhere in the single digits is the breakthrough cases. So even even if there was a significant outbreak amongst the people who went to hymns, it's it's still going to be a, a fairly no, low number. I'm not minimizing that. I'm just saying that I think they did everything they possibly could do to make it as safe as they could, short of just canceling it. Yeah. yeah. And I, mean, I, I think you're going to have in-person conference. You know, they had as they had a significant number of protocols in place. And and then you have to rely on the people who come to to do the right thing after that. How did you follow the conference? I mean, did you follow it at all or did you just go back into your work? I went pretty much back into my work schedule. There were digital events. I almost watched everything that I've watched so far has been or during the conference. And then since the conference has been on demand, I don't think I saw anything live. And that's just a schedule dictating things that I want to see. And like you said, I think the digital content, this is another one of those things that's happened over the course of the pandemic is that in the beginning, things switched to digital and they were all pretty terrible and difficult to use and hard to find the thing that you were looking for and seeing it, consuming it, all of that. And we've gotten better and better and better at that over time. And I think they did a decent job of 
presenting the content that they intended to present in the digital format, they did it pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. Did you watch stuff live or did you just? Uh, I watched uh, I watched nothing live. I will, I will say this. I reached out to a bunch of people that were giving presentations. I recorded my first one yesterday and it was around population, health, and data around the clinically integrated network. That was a good recording. And that's how I'm, I'm sort of following it. I, I picked the education presentations that I think would be valuable to the community. And you know, they sent me their deck and I'm having them on the show and I'm interviewing them because that's great. Those presentations are great for best practices and to really get an idea of what's working. I I'm a huge proponent of being a, a fast follower. The first one through the wall tends to get hurt, but the fast followers tend to do well because somebody has found a gate that's open and you can just walk mm. through it. Yeah. Um, yeah that's, so, that's the practical part of this, right? The For the people who go first and get lots of scars, they usually have really good stories to tell that give me the few practical things that I need to use that I didn't have to learn by, like you said, crashing through the wall at top speed and getting all those scars myself. Yeah. All right. So let's hit some of the stuff that was covered in there. So Hims did a survey ahead of time. This is the article titled, The Digital Revolution Has Begun, but 52% of executives have not progressed beyond the pilot stage. All right. So they did a survey. This was presented by, let's see, first person, Tom Kisau, who's a senior partner with the Chartist Group, talked about the findings, and he talked to 220 executives on issues such as digital health, machine learning, AI. Here's some of the things that are interesting. Again, 52% of the digital transformation projects have not progressed beyond pilot stage. And let's see, but they understand the need for digital transformation. So they're not progressing beyond pilot stage, but they understand the need close to half site digital as a top organizational priority and 80% plan to increase digital investments. That's interesting. Executives question whether making an investment is the best way to begin, but a good warning sign that more planning is needed is that new technology plus old organization equals costly old organization, Kisau said. Most 80% said they believe commercial payments need to grow to support long-term financial health. So I want to talk to you about those two things real quick. So the first, these projects are getting stuck in pilot. And I, th- I think that's pretty interesting. I think it, it is interesting because it doesn't understand the, what the word pilot means. I'm with you. So isn't a pilot like, hey, we have this theory or we have this, the, it, it, it is the scientific method, right? We identified this thing that we think is going to help our system, help our population, help quality. Let's pilot something small real quick so we can determine whether it'll work, and then we'll start to to work it out. It should be something that's quick. It's a test, and it provides feedback. Why are these things getting stuck? What do you think is happening? I mean, I think you're right. Some of this is the just misunderstanding of what a pilot actually is. Pilots have defined beginnings, defined ends. And certain things that you were looking for in the execution of the pilot that help you make a decision about what you're going to do next. This is why this whole 52% are still stuck in pilot program thing concerns me. Because if you think about pilots as something that is either a success or a failure, then that's not really a pilot. That's some project that you tried to roll out that either worked or didn't. If you think of pilots as a success or we learned that's really what pilots are. And they have a defined endpoint and then another decision tree about 
Are we going to do this? Are we going to scale it? Are we going to make an investment? Did this give us enough information to make another set of decisions that we want to make about digital health? And so if you're doing pilots right, they're not a thing that you start and get stuck with forever and then become an operational technology that people become addicted to. And then you have to run them forever in pilot mode. That's not a pilot. That's just a bad project. Yeah. And we've, we've talked about this with startup companies because they get really frustrated because they need to make money and they need a revenue stream. They're in startup mode and they will, uh, they'll get caught in pilot hell where they're doing yeah. like 10 pilots for different health systems, but they're not making any money. But, sure. and, and then they just get stuck because people lose interest in the pilots. It doesn't have enough momentum. It doesn't go through to the end. And they're like, man, this is just death for them. It's just death for a lot of things. How do we change that at health systems? How do we get health systems to understand how to structure a good pilot and how to move it forward? I think that's at least part of it, right? Some of this is tied into good governance structure and making sure that if you're gonna do pilots, you're gonna do pilots projects, you do it in a way that is clear to uh, everyone involved, including the primary stakeholders, and they understand that there's a start and a stop point. Because if you don't, then that's where you wind up in this situation. That's bad for both the health system, bad for IT, because now they've gotta continue to sort of run and support this thing that they, didn't maybe really want to get involved in long-term. And like you said, bad for the startup, especially if it's a product from an early stage company, they keep making changes and making adjustments to try to make their product better for you in hopes that you're eventually going to buy it. And what they find out is that you've actually dragged them out into the middle of the lake and drowned them, right? That is not what anybody wants because that's not good for digital health in general. Yeah, for those people watching on YouTube, you're going to see that I'm having chair issues. So my my chair is like going up and down. It is what it is. I'm just going to keep going here. It's like uh, a Saturday Night Live skit. Something. It, it really is. I, I just keep popping it up and going back down. But uh, the ending phrase here, most, 88%, so 220 executives from health systems said they believe commercial payments need to grow to support long-term financial health. That's uh, That's interesting to me because I think that's that's flying in the face of what I believe is going to happen, which is we have such pressure against the growing cost of healthcare across the board that their, their health systems need to find another way to be financially healthy. And one of, one of the things I've always talked about and I always wondered is in every other industry that we were in, we've seen technology come in and really drive significant efficiencies, cost savings, efficient processes driving better collections, you name it. It's really helped the overall process. But in healthcare, it just seems to pile on and build the cost, but doesn't seem to drive that same level of efficiency as it does in other industries. Has that been your experience or are we starting to see that change a little bit? I am lucky enough to have been involved over the course of my career in Toyota Lean Production Systems sort of thinking at a couple of my organizations and just thinking about performance improvement and process improvement and how much waste there is in the system currently. And a lot of that is driven by bureaucracy and the reality that in many healthcare systems, 
physicians are not employees. And so we have a tendency to bend and flex and try to accommodate them, which means that we do things that may not be the most efficient things in the world. And that isn't just from an IT perspective. That includes things like orthopedic fixation sets that we use in the OR. We make lots of exceptions and do lots of things that are inefficient because we want to the, the primary producers in our organization happy. And it's not just that, it's lots of other stuff. So the system is kind of built to encourage us to be inefficient. And our tendency, I think, growing up in healthcare is to think that our inefficient processes are the best practices in a lot of ways, which encourages us to ask for more money, not to look internally at how we do things and see how we could be more efficient. I think there's a lot of efficiency still to be gained inside of the delivery of healthcare, both on the clinical side and the business side, and even in research. And, and I think we're going to get the pressure to, to make that internal look happen and to become more efficient. Because if we don't, I think you create the situation where you become the target to be acquired as opposed to being the acquiring organization. So the decision ultimately is yours, I think. Yeah, I agree. There's two more findings in this. Hospital at home seems to be taking root and, hmm. and, and growing. And the other is that physicians in general across the survey have said they are more willing to stick with the digital tools that they have adopted through the pandemic post-pandemic. And I, I don't think that's surprising to me. I think, again, it was a massive pilot of a lot of digital tools. And the physicians are looking at it going, hey, this worked for me, this didn't work for me. And I think they'll incorporate some of those things as they move forward. That seems to be pretty obvious mm. to me. Yeah. Change is hard. And I think the pandemic compelled a lot of us to do things that were not normal and were uncomfortable for us. But in a short period of time, those things became comfortable. And so, again, I'm going to keep using the tools that are working for me because I really don't want to change back or I don't want to do something different. So when you have a compelling event that causes people to change their habits and their behavior, they do it. But then it's hard to get them to change again. I think that's part of what you see there. So there's two things that I usually talk to you about whenever you're on the show. By the way, I'm at my exact low point, so I'm not going to fix my chair this is as low as I get. You tip the camera down. Just tip the camera down. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to, but it's too far away from my arm. So <laughs> two topics I'd like to talk to you about. One is space, because you're, you're a space nerd. And uh, the second is uh, cyber events. And there's been some of those. But let's start with the space one, because I think it's interesting. There's a healthcare finance news article, and they had the, was it chief medical officer at the LBJ Space Center? for NASA was there talking about their program. Think about, so how do you provide health in space? Is it a combination of telehealth and hospital at home, essentially remote patient monitoring and those kinds of things? Because you're not doing like a visit, right? They're, they're not saying, hey, there's something wrong. We'll send an ambulance out. So yeah. yeah, is that what it is? Is it a combination of those technologies? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with the we only send extremely healthy people into space right. that have been tested end to end upside down and make sure that they don't have any emerging issues. And is, then is that, is that still the case with this emerging 
space tourism thing? That's an interesting point. I think with space tourism, what you will find is that the duration of those flights are so short that it's more like if you had a medical emergency and you were in a commercial airplane today, they could maybe they can do something like divert the flight. I think this article is more about people who go to the International Space Station and are there for a month over a year at a time. And so I think when it comes to space tourism, once you get to a particular point of flight duration, there's probably going to be a lot more conversations about how do you take care of those patients should they need care uh, while they're in space. It's It's a different program. I think NASA sends really healthy people to space. And then they have an amazing team on the ground who for years has dealt with, have, have really sort of built protocols around medical emergencies and, and all kinds of emergencies and how do you deal with them. The article talks about you can't really have an MRI machine on orbit, but they use a lot of ultrasound. Yes. And so astronauts who have to kind of be experts at everything, right? They have to know how to fix the toilet. They have to know how to run the experiments that they're running. And for some of them, they actually have to do things like control the robotic arm or be able to sort of move the space station out of the way of space debris. And one of the pieces of training they get is kind of like little mini EMT, how do you use ultrasound? And then they're coached by people from the ground. If there's something going on, move it a little bit more this way, this way. Remember that technique we taught you in training where you move the wand like this and they're able to send information back. And certainly there are lifeboats there. If something really seriously happened, you know, seriously bad happened, you needed to get somebody off the ship, you could. And as, as we go farther out, they're going to be taking doctors, aren't they? Well, I think they kind of have to start to think about when we go further out for longer duration flight, there probably will have to be physicians on board. But, you know, this is one of those things where we have subspecialized so much in healthcare that just having a physician on board may not be enough because they may not be experts in the subsystem that is having a problem in a fellow astronaut. So I think the team approach of having people on the ground who can communicate with you and, you know, give you all the essentially telehealth consultation that you can you can take will will be good. At some point the flights get so distant that there's a significant delay in that consultation. And so doing this stuff in real time may become very difficult. And that'll require us to be innovative and creative and come up with new ways of handling it. One of the things I'm looking forward to seeing is how these hospital at home programs play out. Because they are they're not simple logistical challenges. They're, they're pretty complex logistical challenges in terms of getting the technology in the home, identifying the right patients that you can care for from the home, having workflows with the right level of care at the right time in the home, the right monitoring, again, technology, the whole infrastructure and those kind of things. There's a lot of moving parts in that. And Mayo's out in front, Kaiser's out in front, and there's a couple others. I, I think Mercy out of St. Louis is out in front. Hendra Mountain's out in front. But we're, now we're going to have this group of people. That's the next wave coming through. I think there's a, an awful lot of logistics and challenges around that that is going to make it a little harder than what I think people think it is. It's really a combination of a lot of different things we've been doing over the years. So maybe that makes it easier. But we really do have to knit it together pretty well in order for it to work. Yeah, there's 
you know, something to this tied to the sort of previous conversation of the people who go through the wall first, take all the scars and all the beatings and the people who come after have a much easier time of it. Not that it's easy because it's not going to be easy, but the decision tree is greatly reduced, right? We're going to use hospital at home for these kinds of patients only who have these kinds of diseases because we have these kinds of professionals that can be involved in that kind of care. We're not going to do hospital at home for 20 things. We're going to do hospital at home for two things. That gives organizations a chance to sort of build up their experience and their confidence that they can do this well, and then they can expand and grow after that. All right, let's talk cybersecurity, not because you're on, but because it keeps coming up in the news. Right. right. Scripps. So Scripps had to announce their financials. And so they announced the the revenue loss from the event was $113 million. And, and that was partially lost revenue and partially cost of remediating the cyber event and those kind of things. They're gonna, they're going to be able to get some of that money back, but I think the max is about 15 million in insurance, cyber mm-hmm. insurance and other insurance claims. So essentially what you're looking at is potentially $100 million out of pocket. Does that now become, I, I, I just did this Today Show where I said, look, the, I would know these numbers backwards and forwards. And Scripps is roughly a $3 billion health system, roughly, I don't know, 16 to 18,000 employees, roughly 3,000 physicians. I would know these numbers backwards and forwards because if I were going to my board asking for money, and I would be right now saying, look, if you want to make sure we don't have a $100 million event, I need like 10% of that money this year yeah. to, to really shore some things up to make sure that we're not the one that's in the news. We're not taking a 30-day downtime and we're not taking a $100 million hit to our bottom line. And that, we're not even talking about reputation at this point. We're just talking about oh, dollars. No, for sure. I mean, the things that don't appear in there are things like you know, when you have a big foundation that relies on contributions from uh, donors, what's that impact been? That doesn't, you know, necessarily figure in. And, and maybe it's been nothing, right? But but that kind of impact doesn't figure into some of the figures that you that you see here. And there's some math behind this too, right? <clears throat> we do some really interesting business value analysis uh, products with prospects and potential clients as we sort of talk through the whole, how do you justify the expense? How do you wind up paying for cybersecurity when sometimes it's a hard case to make? And so things like taking that $113 million and dividing it by the number of employees that you have in the organization, that number is way higher than the number we use in our business value analysis. And so the reality is, I think, as we continue to have these incidents and we go through these things, as those kinds of data are disclosed, health systems can continue to use that kind of data to make their case, as you're saying. We say this all the time. It's not, it's not an if, it's a when. And in fact, I would make the argument that at most health systems, you know, to use an analogy, there are bad guys prowling the halls every day, trying all the doors. It's not if they're going to be there, they are there already. It's just they haven't tried the right doorknob yet. Have we gotten better? So if I were a CIO today, I would be, you know, I'd want to be able to detect, to detect right? That's one of the keys is I want to know that bad guys are prowling around. Not that I may not be able to keep them from prowling around and getting in, 
because there's there's an awful lot of I mean, as we talked about before, I mean, the attack surface is so so large, but I want to be able to detect them very quickly and be able to respond or remediate. But I'm more worried about the ransom. I get the phone call. It looks like a network problem. It feels like this. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, no, it's ransomware. I get that phone call. I want to know that I can get us back up and running, not in 30 days, but I don't know, 10 days, five days, yeah. two days. Are we making progress there, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the organization and the partners that they've chosen. And I don't want to turn this into a CrowdStrike commercial, but I mean, speed is the key to the operation, right? <clears throat> the ability to be able to see that someone's in and be able to determine that someone's in and they're actually doing nefarious things and then being able to kick them out before they can actually move laterally and do other kinds of crazy damage, which becomes a much bigger incident response kind of event that you have to deal with. So speed is the key to everything. And if you have the right partners, if you have the right sort of setup in your security program and your infrastructure, you can create the situation where you've got that. You can see bad guys immediately and you can kick them out before they do any damage or before they do any damage beyond maybe the machine that they're on. And then if you and then you can put that machine back in service right away. You also eliminate kind of the cost of today's standard, which is we're just going to re-image that machine, which doesn't really solve any of the problems because you don't know what happened. You don't know why or how the bad guy got in or what they what they were specifically doing. You often blow away all those forensics in the interest of getting the machine back in service so that the person who was using it can get back to work. So there are ways to do it today, but you know, not everyone's there. So there's a there's an article here. I'll be honest, I haven't read it yet. The title caught my eye, which is ransomware attacks to pay or not to pay. Mm. And is there ever an instance where you look at a health system and, and, and say, go ahead and pay? Because you know, the pipeline paid and somebody else paid. I mean, so people are paying. Is there ever an instance where you look at a health system and say, yeah, go ahead and pay? So personally, <laughs> this is me. That's high um, risk, right? It's high risk. You're, it is. You're, well, I mean, look, here's a the bottom line, you're already dealing with a criminal who's broken in and locked up all your stuff, and now you can't get to it. And so if you decide to pay, first of all, you're dealing with a criminal. So maybe they'll keep their word and maybe they won't. And their word is that they're going to give you a decryption key. Then there's the reality that sometimes, look, these are not the world's greatest software developers that are in this business, they're really good at encrypting. Decrypting, they don't really care that much about decrypting. <laughs> yeah, we, so we maybe just, they just spend enough software. time on that code, man. We should have right, really debugged right. it a little bit more. So you may give them the $10 million and they may give you decryption keys, but maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. And even if it does, you've created a situation where you've now um, identified yourself as a willing victim and that you're going to pay. So they are going to come back. You know, this isn't a one-time dance that you're doing. Right. And you've put a bunch of money into the, the dark underground of cyber criminals, which, as we've talked about on the show before, isn't one person who breaks in and then does launches ransomware and then negotiates with you and collects the ransom and gives you the, the keys. This is a whole crazy underground economy 
of cyber criminals who have subspecialized as far as being able to get credentials and they sell them on the black market to the team that is really good at going in and casing the joint, right? And figuring out where all the crown jewels are and then mapping all that out, coming back out, selling that information on the dark web to the person who is to the team that is really good at launching ransomware and negotiating for, for payment. These are major, major corporations. I saw something the other day that said, if you took cybersecurity criminal, the amount of money that has been made through ransomware over the past year or two, that it would be like the third or fourth largest economy in the world. It's a magnificently done, well-engineered, run by real CEOs kind of business that is in the business of stealing stuff from you. So you have to you have to be prepared for that. All right. So Lockbit Ransomware, recruiting insiders to breach corporate networks. A couple of things there. One is I'm not familiar with Lockbit. This is fairly new to me. So any any wisdom you can impart on that? A ransomware gang that has, I don't know, really great software that is super good at encrypting stuff very, very fast. And now apparently not only locks up the system, but puts wallpaper up on the machines that says, hey, if you want to give up any of your credentials and passwords, uh, you can become an affiliate. And Oh, uh, golly. Like, what the hell? (laughs) Sorry. So is that what it means, recruiting it? When they say recruiting insiders, is that after the attack has been launched or are they recruiting insiders to launch the attacks? Well, based on what I've read, I think it's more about recruiting insiders to, you can make money for your credentials and your password. So you would hope that nobody would take them up on that, but (laughs) I just don't know anymore. That's interesting. It is an HR issue. You need to have, if you have any disgruntled employees, they they are potential targets for people. And if they identify who the disgruntled employees are, they could have an accomplice within. We had 19,000 employees at, at St. Joe's. I'm sure one of them was disgruntled enough to be coerced or underpaid enough to be coerced to help right. for a certain amount of money. Right. That's, right. That, that's, a, that's a very real problem. Having spent 20 years in the U.S. Air Force and had a top secret clearance most of that time, the amount of background investigations and things that you go through, specifically because of this, right? Everybody's, you want to make sure they're not in a position to be coerced. You want to make sure that they're not in a position to be, you know, bribed or blackmailed. And we don't do that with all of our employees. We certainly don't have that kind of a machine, but it is the kind of thing that you need to make sure we all do, but I think we could all do better. We all need to have the machine set up so that when you're engaged with HR, you're about to let somebody go, that everybody's ready. While you're in the meeting, having the conversation about somebody's fired, all of their accounts should be turned off. All the things that they have access to should be turned off. And that in some cases, even employees who decide to leave on their own, you'll want to do some some forensic investigations on what did they download and what have they transferred and those kinds of things. because. You just don't know, and you have to protect yourself. Yeah, I know at uh, consulting organizations I've been at over the years, we were very 
curious as to what people were downloading and taking. And they kept coming up with more and more sophisticated ways to make sure that people couldn't do that. But speaking yeah. of consulting firms, so Accenture downplays ransomware attack as Lockbit Gang leaks corporate data. And that is one of the one of the risks here, right? And Accenture is probably, yeah, I mean, definitely well-funded, definitely smart group of people. And they were able to get in, get to some corporate data, and now they're, they're posting it out there. Does that mean there's no hope for any of us? <laughs> no, I, I don't think that's what it means. And you get different sides of this story, too. That's where a lot of the investigation part of a post-breach and incident response is really important. There are bad guys posting stuff that they say they got from Accenture, but it maybe wasn't necessarily from this breach. I mean, who knows? This is what the investigation needs to kind of reveal. Is this is this data that was already available on the dark web and this gang is uh, posting this stuff and making these claims because they have some other reason to try to make Accenture look bad? I mean, if you read Accenture as part of the story, they say this was just a scratch. Somebody got in. Definitely somebody got in. We don't think they downloaded anything. We resolved the attack uh, very quickly and went put everything back in service. So the devil's in the details in the in the in the investigation and I'm sure more more will come out on this breach. We'll learn more of the facts as time goes on. Interesting. Drex, any other stories or anything else going on that you want to want to discuss? I just saw this morning T-Mobile had a breach too. There's several healthcare systems that have recently had breaches that have driven diverting ambulances and postponing surgeries and those kinds of things. It feels like we're on the daily now. It feels like, I mean, it's not really the daily, but it feels like every week there's at least one or two of these in healthcare, which is really frightening, critical infrastructure, right? People depend on this. If you're in the middle of, I don't know, I'm making this up, but if you're in the middle of South Dakota and your hospital gets breach, then you have to divert ambulances. I mean, the nearest hospital might be 100 miles away. It's not, this is really, really serious. So we got to keep working on it. We got to keep working on it, making it better. Yeah. So I, the most recent one I saw about was Ohio Health. And I saw that on 3X Drex, text 484848 to- uh, Text Drex to 484848. Drex to 484848. <laughs> I haven't done that in a while. Sorry about that. Now, are, you, are you still getting those out or is that getting hard? I have- I hit a little bit of a slack. I was a little slacker for a while, but I'm back to it now. It's not It's not that it's harder. There's plenty of stuff to share with people. For me, it's more about time of just setting down and cranking it out. So, People are always asking me, it's like, are you worried about all the oncoming competition in podcasts? And I, I always say the same thing. No, not really. I said, because I know how hard this is to be consistent and do it every week and do the daily show every day and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, you know, most of these podcasts will start and end well before we stop doing this. So, but, you know, and there's adult. so much news and there's so much specialization and subspecialization that the, the beauty of, I think, this space that you're in is that people don't have to just tune in to one podcast. They can listen to lots of different podcasts, even if they're in the same niche, because they pick up 
different pieces of news from those different channels. And they don't have to listen to it real time, right? The other thing you've created is this asynchronous ability to, like, I can listen to this when I run or when when I'm in the gym or on the drive home, so... Yeah, that's why we're going to launch multiple new shows next year. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Drax, always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm sorry my chair is so far down. I look like I look like mini me now. I'm so low, low in the uh, chair. Sorry about that. Same, same, same here, man. Always good to be with you. You look good. I don't care what they say. <laughs> I, I want to talk today. Hey, thanks again. Take care. What a great discussion. If you know of someone that might benefit from our channel, from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note. Perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to this show. It's it's conference-level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or they can go wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, which is what I use, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it, we're out there. They can find us. Go ahead, subscribe today, send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our channel sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health IT leaders. Those are VMware, Hillrom, Starbridge Advisors, Aruba, and McAfee. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.